Directors of FCCA, Episode 89 for the week ending February 9, 2018 for Eagle Store Edition. In this episode, Jay Rosen and I take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. We considered Steve Wynn's resignation and Wells Fargo's continuing problems and what they tell us about corporate governance. We review an article by um, Bill Coffin, which uh, takes a shot at Fortune's World's Most Admired Companies list. We consider leniency deals now offered by Japan for companies who provide information on other violations, such as anti-corruption and anti-bribery. We consider banks behaving badly, both Rabobank and HSBC. We note the uh, the UK Serious Fraud Office has opened uh, an additional uh, investigation into GSK for its actions in China. We uh, ask why does the ABA oppose transparency and anti-money laundering law reform? Uh, We take out a shocking, just shocking look at the Pentagon uh, for waste, fraud, and abuse of uh, over $100 million as uncovered by, or reported rather, by Brian Bender in Political. Uh, We talk about my pre-sale of my uh, upcoming book, The Complete Compliance Handbook, and note the compliance masterclass I'm putting on uh, Monday and Tuesday at um, Markham LLP in Florida in conjunction with Jonathan Marks. And finally, we reflect on the uh, Super Bowl win by the Eagles over the Patriots. What were our final thoughts? This is Tom Fox. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Back again for another episode of This Week in FCPA with my good friend and colleague, Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen. Jay, uh, we are on episode 89 for the week ending, February 9, 2018, the Eagle Soar edition. Welcome. Fly, Eagles, fly. Fly, Eagles, fly. So, Jay, we had a very interesting week, I thought, in um, uh, ethics and compliance. So some of our stories, I think, this week will really bleed into into both. So why don't we just jump right into it? We had uh, uh, continued fallout from the Steve Wynn uh, imbroglio. Uh, Steve Wynn, founder, CEO, and uh, chairman of the board at Wynn Casinos, resigned his position from the corporate board uh, for uh, sexual harassment allegations. The um, reports were that I believe he paid $7.5 million to a woman uh, he allegedly um, uh, attacked. And there have been several other um, payments made, uh, approved by the board of directors of Wynn Casinos. And Matt Kelly took a really interesting look at this from the corporate governance perspective, where he talked about what do you do when you have not the situation where the founder is the corporation and the corporation is the founder, but really when you've moved past that, you have a U.S. public corporation, yet you have a charismatic a leader who uh, happened to be the founder and still is uh, very active in the in the success of the casino. So active, in fact, that in the latest couple of 10Ks that when casinos issued, they uh, noted that it would uh, materially impact the corporation negatively if uh, Mr. Wynn were to uh, be gone. Whether I don't think they anticipated this type of be gone, but. Um, Matt really had a uh, interesting uh, way, uh, or, or certainly starting with some corporate governance, good corporate governance strategies. Uh, one was to split the role of the CEO and the chairman of the board. But at the end of the day, uh, he came down with 
a couple of different ways to look at it. One is uh, more tactical, uh, structural, where uh, you have a, a robust compliance program uh, that is uh, merited, uh, autonomous, and has authority within the corporation. So if any allegations arise, they can be dealt with. But also, and what I want to tie into with the um, Wells Fargo um, penalty, Jay, is the board of directors itself. And what's the responsibility of the board? Uh, obviously, the board knew about this because they were approving payments. The payments to settle the sexual harassment claims did not come from when personally, but from uh, corporate money. So the board's aware of this, or that does this make them complicit in this? And then um, even as uh, uh, today it was reported that the firm that had been hired to do the independent investigation of the allegations has now been terminated. So the board is, uh, is the board hushing it up? Uh, the firm, uh, excuse me, the law firm had set up a reporting line for information and uh, allegations and facts to be reported. That's been shut down. So what's the role of the board going forward? Uh, if you overlay all of that in an even more regulated environment, Jay, uh, which the gaming business is, it's regulated in every state. Um, the uh, Wynn Casinos is attempting to open the largest uh, casino in the East Coast, I believe, in Boston. So, um, and the Massachusetts Gaming Authority has uh, indicated that even with the resignation of Steve Wynn, the inquiry into the company's fitness to operate or, or receive a license or continue to hold a license, I should say, is in question. Whether that would move to Las Vegas or, or Macau, which is actually the biggest cash cow for uh, the Wynn uh, Casinos Corporation, it's still an open question. But you know, what's the role of the board of directors in ethics and compliance? And is this something that uh, regulators are going to start looking at more closely? I drew the parallel to the Fed, Federal Reserve sanction against um, Wells Fargo, where they uh, restricted the company's overall financial growth and required uh, new blood on the board of directors, uh, specifically because of the lack of the board's response both during the fraudulent account scandal and going forward. So uh, I really thought there was a lot to unpack there. But interestingly, Jay, it's it's at the top of the organization. And it's uh, things like tone at the top, conduct at the top, the role of the board. Is, should the board have compliance expertise uh, on it? Uh, what should be the role of the board when a charismatic founder slash leader uh, engages in conduct that is if not antithetical to good governance, certainly uh, violates the norms of uh, business practices and conduct. So lots uh, for me to, to really think about and talk about. And what about from uh, your perspective? Yeah, I, I think you've you hit on a couple key points, Tom. One is that uh, ubiquitous tone at the top that we're always talking about. And I think this is really migrating above the top and it's really tone at the board. And uh, there's going to be some other articles we'll take a look at this morning where um, people are advocating that the board can't just be there uh, to be a rubber stamp mechanism, that there need to be folks on the board who have uh, financial experience, who have audit experience. And uh, these things cannot just be swept under the rug and hushed up. So, um, you know, it, it's interesting how you draw that through line from uh, you know, what 
what was happening at Wynn Corporation all the way to uh, B of A, or excuse me, um, Wells Fargo, that these are still folks who are operating with uh, the old ostrich approach, putting their head, uh, you know, deep down into the sand. So uh, it, I was just marveling to myself that everything we're going to go over in a half hour or less is some our articles in our stories that broke this week. So it's just uh, amazing that how um, ethics and compliance is just really taking over uh, corporate governance and no longer are these things going to be something that can just be swept to the side. Uh, Jay, next we had an article by my colleague Bill Coffin, the editor at Compliance Week, that uh, really resonated with me and I think uh, did so uh, with you. It's entitled uh, Keeping Bad Company, but uh, what were your thoughts? Well, you know, throughout the year, we have all these lists of the, the world's best company and the world's most ethical. And, you know, sometimes um, companies are, are voted on, sometimes they uh, apply uh, and put themselves up. And, you know, the, the list tends not to change much from year to year. And some of the folks that made the list for 2018 were Amazon, Google, uh, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, Starbucks, the Walt Disney Company, Microsoft, Southwest Airlines, FedEx, and J.P. Morgan Chase. And they're all very strong companies with proven histories of market dominance, innovation, and strong management. But then when you start to really dig down into this, uh, Bill Coffin um, from Compliance Week has really pointed out that maybe some of these companies aren't as uh, pristine as we think they were. And uh, specifically with Apple, he uh, cited that Apple is currently locked into major tax disputes with Europe because of the manner in which it's creatively exploited European tax law to essentially do business in the EU without paying taxes. And, uh, you know, although you want to minimize your tax exposure, that just doesn't seem something that a squeaky clean company would do. Uh, he also addressed Volkswagen and the fact that, you know, um, even though it's maybe one of the world's largest uh, car makers in terms of sales, that it's still uh, the Dieselgate scandal is very close in its rearview mirror. And um, finally, he also talked, well, not finally, but he talked about uh, Johnson & Johnson and its campaign to discredit a uh, generic market for a painkiller that it had invented. So uh, when drugs hit the generic phase, uh, that's it, and you have to live with it. And J&J &J conducted a campaign to sabotage the generic market in favor of itself. Uh, two more examples of the company that you keep is Samsung with their chief executive uh, going to jail and actually getting out early for bribery. And uh, the worst by far, which we just mentioned, was Wells Fargo. And there is such a toxic environment there that uh, basically they've been uh, prohibited to grow the bank, as you mentioned, uh, because there's a cultural problem that cannot be fixed overnight. And unfortunately, they lack reliable indicators that the problem has been addressed much at all. So when you throw around some of the biggest names of the, the, co the co companies who are doing business globally, and they all seem to have this very um, – you know, weak Achilles heel of ethics and compliance, it uh, shows that there's just so much work ahead. What, what were your thoughts in Bill's article? 
So uh, it really hit the highlights, Jay, and I have to agree with everything that uh, you said. And he ends by talking about Wells Fargo, uh, which is clearly the most egregious uh, one to put on here, uh, to claim that they are admired, I think belies not only every anecdotal story, but indeed every metric we've seen. And uh, this is in the face of literally 10 days ago, the Federal Reserve Bank uh, saying that not only has the company not fully remediated, um, the board of directors has not engaged in their obligations. And before you can actually grow your business, and think about that for a minute, we're not, this is not a fine or penalty. This is, you cannot grow your business until you get your house in order. Uh, and the, uh, Estimated non-growth cost is going to be between three to four hundred million, which uh, more than doubles the fine and penalties uh, Wells Fargo has already paid. Um, really belies um, uh, Wells getting on this list. Uh, the same with Samsung. I'm, I'm a little bit less concerned with Johnson Johnson, but even Volkswagen. You know, um, you would think a German company would be more sensitive than any other company, country's companies on earth to gas testing, even if it's primates and even if it's volunteer humans. And that probably offends me as much as anything Volkswagen has done when, they, uh, when the, that testing came out, emissions testing. Uh, so Volkswagen's got a, a pretty big uh, open hole in their culture. Uh, as well, and um, I certainly don't uh, admire them. All right, well, next up, um, we have a, a story that's uh, about Japan is offering leniency deals for uh, companies which provide information and other violations, and this is from Michael Griffiths at the Global Investigations Review. Um, we'll link to it, but a subscription is required, and uh, I would say that um, 2018 is quickly uh, shaping up to be the year of uh, leniency deals in exchange for um, self-reporting. And uh, we've seen this idea start to sweep across the globe, just as uh, the U.S. has kind of uh, taken the lead and, you know, linked up with global enforcers. Uh, we've seen this idea now spring up in Singapore, spring up in uh Brazil and spring up in China, and now with Japan saying as well, they are set to introduce leniency deals for bribery and fraud that will reward individuals and companies for cooperation, but only if they hand over the evidence that implicates other, others. Uh, this amendment to Japan's Code of Con Criminal Procedure made in 2016 will actually come into effect later on in June 2018, establishing a mechanism for companies and individuals to negotiate reduced penalties uh, for bribery, embezzlement, and fraud. And the regime called the new system allows prosecutors to dismiss or downgrade charges or recommend that a court impose a lighter penalty than it may have done otherwise. Um, lawyers in Japan speaking on background said that the system could be a way to offer cooperation credit to parties in a country that doesn't recognize legal privilege. 
unlike jurisdictions such as in the U.S. and the U.K., suspects aren't able to appear cooperative by waiving privilege over communications because prosecutors are able to obtain the documents they would require with court-approved search warrants. So it sounds um, like you know the ideas that were put first in the uh, corporate enforcement policy seem to be gaining traction across the world. Your thoughts on this, Tom? Uh, yeah, and it's exactly your final point, Jay, which are, which is that uh, it's not leniency for leniency's sake. It's leniency for information, and it's leniency for agreeing to uh, certain uh, remediation going forward. So uh, I think a welcome step, uh, whether it's called a leniency agreement, as in uh, the Brazil under the Clean Companies Act, whether it's called a deferred prosecution agreement in the United States or the United Kingdom or something else, uh, certainly a welcome addition, certainly a way for investigators, prosecutors, and enforcers to garner more information and, frankly, make uh, compliance more ubiquitous ubiquitous uh, by companies agreeing to uh, remediate fully. So uh, I thought it was a positive step, certainly having Japan step up and recognize its uh, obligations uh, under the OECD to move forward with a greater uh, focus on anti-bribery, anti-corruption is, is a good thing. So now, Jay, we've we we continue the saga or the continuing story of banks behaving badly. You want to take us into this one? Sure. So this one, uh, this first story might augur for us actually to have a wall, but we need maybe a. A money, a money laundering wall between Mexico and the U.S. And um, I guess do you say Rabobank? Am I am I saying it correctly? Uh, Rabobank, uh, Rabobank. Okay, this is uh, the U.S. unit of a Netherlands-based Rabobank pleaded guilty Wednesday to felony conspiracy for concealing defects in its anti-money laundering program and obstructing a federal investigation. Rabobank National Association, based in Roseville, California, will forfeit $368.7 million for allowing Mexican drug money to be processed to the bank. Uh, two months ago, Rabobank's former anti-money laundering investigations manager, George Martin, pleaded guilty to aiding and abetting AML failures. He agreed to cooperate with federal investigators under a two-year deferred prosecution agreement. Uh, and some kind of shocking statistics that the article mentions. Uh, this is Dick Casson uh, writing in his FCPA blog, and it says, uh, basically, Rabobank, as AML system, alerted staff to suspicious accounts, but managers told the staff to ignore the alerts if the customers appeared on a, quote, verified list, unquote. In 2009, there were less than 10 verified counters, uh, customers. By 2012, there were more than 1,000 verified customers, the DOJ said. So that, again, um, you know, if you're, if you're looking at the greed and the avarice there, they have banks set up right on the Mexican border. They are dealing with high-risk individuals. They are shirking their AML responsibility. And then uh, not, they're not throwing drug money into teddy bears, but they're uh, actually just cleaning the cash right there and using it at the border. So um, Sam Rubenfeld also took a look at that uh, in the Wall Street Journal, which we'll link to our um, show notes. 
And uh, basically he said uh, that this is signaling a shift because we're seeing banks being prosecuted for covering up the violations as opposed to the violations themselves. So that's the good word on Rabobank. And then we also have HSBC, who has been in a, a similar predicament, and uh, we are there being taken to tax again for its chronic recidivism and how they uh, deal with uh, AML laws. So um, your thoughts on this, Tom? Uh, I really like the way uh, um, the bank put, uh, put this business unit uh, close to the border. And uh, then uh, claim, oh, you know, we don't know anything. Um, it, it it seems like the entire um, business plan was to get Mexican money to launder it through. And uh, I, I hope that wasn't it. But uh, nevertheless, it uh, demonstrates why uh, your geographic location can change your risk profile. So any bank that is on the Texas-Mexico border has a Latin American focus, as many banks do in uh, Miami, uh, need to have robust uh, money laundering and money laundering departments and the understand that the government and regulators and under banks, that would be the Federal Reserve, they're going to be looking closely at you because you are in high-risk areas. And in our in a corruption world, uh, that translates to if you're doing business in a in a location that is uh, prone or uh, uh, perceived to be of high corruption, uh, you need to have a more robust program in place because the uh, the regulators certainly will come. All right. Well, next up, we're going to go across the pond, and um, the SFO is uh, reopening investigations into allegations of GlaxoSmithKline's corruption in China. Uh, why don't you tell us about that one, Tom? So this one is both surprising and unsurprising, Jay. Um, for anyone who followed the uh, sad saga of uh, GSK in China, they'll recall that in 2000, the summer of 2013, approximately 50 uh, GSK China business unit employees were arrested, detained, or interviewed by Chinese authorities. Um, uh, one year later, GSK uh, was convicted of paying bribes in China, assessed approximately a 500, uh, it's about $497 million fine. Uh, four corporate executives were uh, uh, personally convicted. Uh, one uh, UK citizen, the uh, country manager, he was deported. Three other Chinese nationals served some period of uh, jail, jail time. Um, the serious fraud office has never sanctioned GSK for its actions in China. Uh, there's never been any report of how far up the chain this went. It, it went at least to uh, the head of the business unit in China, uh, but we don't know uh, what happened in the um, corporate headquarters in the United Kingdom. The Securities and Exchange Commission assessed a $20 million fine to settle civil charges that uh, Glaxo had uh, violated the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. There was no corresponding DOJ fine. Um, Certainly, you have to uh, understand that this information uh, has been communicated to both the SEC and Department of Justice um, about the SFO inquiry. So it's possible that uh, either the SEC could reopen their case or the Justice Department uh, could reopen theirs if it was ever closed. So uh, these allegations, though, 
are against uh, GSK's use of third parties in the bribery pro probes. And this was um, a little bit surprising. The surprising part is because this was a prominent feature of the original underlying case. Uh, GSK paid a little over $500 million out uh, uh, basically through third parties to pay bribes to sell drugs uh, in China. They paid bribes to doctors. They paid bribes to hospital administrators. They paid bribes to government officials uh, in health ministries. There was an entire bribery program and scheme set up. Uh, the bribes were paid through uh, the anomaly of what Chinese, the Chinese call travel agencies. Now, that's not the typical U.S. or Western uh, travel agency that you and I might think of, Jay, um, but these were groups that set up conferences and did uh, sort of uh, large speaking engagements. And the competition for these positions uh, or contracts with GSK in China was so great that these travel agencies actually bribed GSK in China, China business unit employees. So this information has been around quite some time. Uh, so the surprising thing is that uh, there's just this announcement now. Um, on the other hand, it's completely unsurprising to me that it's being investigated. Um, although, once again, I would ask why uh, almost five years after the original story was reported in the press, um, this is now a subject of a SFO inquiry. But uh, very interesting case, had a lot of uh, sexy things uh, there was even a sex tape scandal. Um, so um, uh, we'll just have to see where this one takes us, Jay. Yeah. Uh, so now it's a very interesting article that you uncovered from um, the Global Anti-Corruption blog written by our friend Matthew Stevenson. And uh, he asked the question, which you will attempt to answer, why does the American Bar Association oppose transparency and AML law reform? What are your thoughts on that? So this um, was actually, I found it to be quite disturbing, uh, largely because the American Bar Association has taken a formal position against uh, transparency for the beneficial uh, ownership question of corporations. Uh, as you know, Jay, we were named number two in the world for um, opaqueness and lack of transparency in beneficial ownerships of corporations a couple of weeks ago, the We're Number Two episode that we went over. And this is a gaping hole in the American uh, legal system around money laundering and anti-money laundering. And so there have been various um, uh, legislative attempts to require the naming of the owners of corporations. And that's all we're asking here for, or asking Congress is. And here, the American Bar Association actually uh, has um, sent a letter uh, opposing it. Now, uh, there are three bases for this that uh, Professor Stevenson uh, opines on. One is the cost of compliance, uh, and you have to say that's laughable on its face because every bank uh, has robust systems around know your customer. Uh, the second is that, and, and this gets into obviously legal eccentricity, but it's it's equally inane. Uh, the ABA's other uh, major objection is that the bill could, not does, but could impinge on lawyer-client confidentiality. Um, and even Professor Stevenson writes, this objection carries essentially zero weight with respect to the part of the bill that requires uh, applicants or their agents to provide beneficial ownership to the government. 
So to say that by requiring a company to name who its owners are impinges on the uh, attorney-client relationship only uh, holds water if you're trying to uh, evade the law. So it's it's really worse than zero. And then there is um, one other point that he raises that uh, lawyers who uh, in the in the bill would be called formation agents, it's i.e. lawyers who help form corporations, uh, that um, subjecting lawyers to the requirements of AML law would be an infringement of traditional attorney-client confidentiality. And I find that equally specious uh, because uh, banks have to do this. It's not revealing a client confidentiality to name a client in a public setting. It's certainly one thing if a client comes to me, says, look, I've uh, um, broken a law. I was drunk and killed someone, uh, um, but I do not allow you to disclose my name to authorities. Uh, that's attorney-client privilege. That's attorney. T- that's confidential information to a client. And there's actually cases that say uh, attorney cannot be required to uh, release that information on the name of the client if they've committed a crime. But um, this is simply, um, you know, getting a getting a corporation set up. So it's um, really, um, I think, a very very bad position taken by the ABA. Uh, Professor Stevenson further opines that there's appear to be two groups of lawyers uh, who are pushing this. One is small firms or solo firms who provide uh, corporate registration services and who would indeed find it more difficult to operate if they had actual scrutiny on them. Uh, And then the flip side, of course, is large firms who represent very wealthy, shady characters uh, who help these clients set up complex financial and legal structures to shield their assets. And here you only think of you think of the uh, uh, Panama Papers uh, firms uh, involved in that. So um, he has tried to find out who at the ABA authorized this. Typically, uh, you would only have an important decision uh, on taking a formal position on legislation approved by the House of Delegates, and there's no House of Delegates vote or resolutions on this. Uh, So this is going to be a continuing story, but it really brings up, Jay, the the larger issue of the difficulty in AML reform and uh, uh, reform of beneficial ownership. Once again, this is simply requiring people who form corporations to list their true owners. Um, and uh, if we can't get this passed in the United States, uh, we've really got no hope of um, of uh, having substantive uh, ANL, AML uh, litigation or legislation put in place. Well, very, very uh, interesting article. And the thing that I kind of uh, focused in on uh, when Professor Stevenson talks about some of the opposition that remains, it's uh, the usual players. And he opines that the sources of opposition are, in some cases, predictable, such as the Chamber of Commerce, for example, that opposes these reforms, as does Freedom Works, the lobbying group sponsored by the Libertarian billionaire Koch brothers. One of the major opponents of the legislation, though, was more surprising, at least to the professor, was that the ABA, which represents the legal profession, the ABA has come strongly against this legislation, legislation, sending letters to responsible committees in both the House and the Senate, expressing strong opposition to even relatively mild reforms. So, you know, you've got these uh, anti- um, 
regulatory forces that are out there. But this isn't even, as you said, Tom, it's it's not even regulatory. This is just common business practices. And if we can't be transparent on how who we are and how we're doing business, uh, it truly puts us in a bad place. Uh, to lead the discussion about ethics and compliance and corruption to a place where we would never think it exists. Um, the Pentagon, according to EY, has lost some money, maybe even millions of money and uh, millions of dollars worth of taxpayers' money or billions or trillions. And this story comes to us from Brian Bender and Politico. And uh, what did EY have to say about the DLA, Tom? So I know just as I can tell the absolute uh, shock and surprise in your voice that lawyers would ever do anything that would uh, try to uh, uh, benefit lawyers or even their clients, you're shocked, just shocked to hear that there's waste, fraud, and abuse going on at the uh, Pentagon and the Department of Defense. And what uh, ENY found was that the Defense Logistics Agency had failed to properly document more than $800 million in construction projects where there was no auditable paper trail. And uh, as uh, Chuck Senator Chuck Grassley said, if you can't follow the money, you're not going to be able to do an audit. If you can't do an audit, you can't see where the money's been spent. So this is, um, uh, I would say, incredibly damning. I would also say, uh, yeah, I'm not really surprised. Uh, gee, waste, fraud, and abuse at the Pentagon. But it really points up to the need for robust uh, inspections, robust inspector generals, and robust oversight. And I know, Jay, that um, I believe uh, your colleague, Eric Feldman, came out of the IG's office and that the inspection of contracts and the inspection of a series of contracts is an important part of every government agency's remit. And the, that um, uh, theory or that philosophy also goes across to the private sector, i.e. the world that you and I work in, so that an ongoing monitoring at an outside audit and having a, a true expert come in and look at something uh, can help companies run more efficiently by keeping waste, fraud, and abuse out of the system. So um, I'd like to tell you I'm surprised, uh, but the reality is I'm not. There is uh, some spokesman uh, <clears throat> at the DLA that was able to put a positive spin on this, and this will be the uh, last thing I'll share in it. Quote, each audit report will help the DLA build better finance reporting foundation and provide a stepping stone towards a clean audit of our financial statements. The findings also improve our internal controls, which help to improve the quality of costs and logistics data used for decision making. So, you know, it, it, it appears there is some positive coming out of it. It's just uh, unfortunate that it would take almost a billion dollar audit from EW, rather from EY to find this out. So, Tom, uh, spin, spinning now to some of uh, good, some good stuff that you've got going. Uh, why don't you tell us about how pre-sales are going on the new book? So pre-sales are going uh, briskly. The Complete Compliance Handbook is still scheduled for a mid-April publication. Um, it's available, information is available on my website. Uh, if you'd like more information, you can certainly email me. I've got a flyer I can send you on it. Uh, getting ready to do um, 
uh, several more uh, promotional efforts on various different platforms. So a lot of information is going to come out about it, and I hope you'll uh, take a look at it. I'm still very excited uh, that it's being published and very excited to uh, very excited to have completed it, but even more excited uh, to have it published. And uh, when I can get a copy in my hands, I'm sure I'll be, uh, be uh, very excited then as well. Um, it's not too late if you're interested in um, – Attending the Doing Compliance Masterclass. I think we have one slot left, uh, uh, Monday and Tuesday in Miami. Jonathan, uh, our good friend Jonathan Marks at Markham LLP is uh, hosting the event. So I'll be uh, doing it with Jonathan. He's one of the top uh, 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 forensic auditors and internal auditors around, uh, certainly in uh, fraud, waste, and abuse, and FCPA anti-corruption. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. But, Jay, here's the, here's the part I've been really wanting to ask you. Uh, because uh, I think you're aware the Patriots lost the Super Bowl uh, last week, or actually I should say the Eagles won it. The Patriots didn't lose it. But what were your thoughts uh, on the game? Uh, as most of the uh, Tom Brady builds Belichick uh, Super Bowls, uh, it was truly exciting. It, it went down to the end, and it looked like uh, Tom Terrific almost was going to pull another rabbit out of his hat. And, uh, I don't really have any issues with the way it went down. The Tom is 40 years old. He threw for over 500 yards of offense. Uh, when you score 33 points in the NFL, if you have a mediocre defense, um, I hope when you score 33 points in the NFL and you have a mediocre defense, you should usually be able to win those games 90% of the time. And uh, with the exception of a strip sack, uh, a poorly uh, executed um, reverse on a kickoff, and with the clock running out, uh, the Patriots missed their last gasp. But um, I just tried to be upset and sad about it this week, and I couldn't be because uh, I, I think it really came down to the Patriots' defense not stepping up. What do you think about uh, – your perspective from the Eagle side. So um, I think it's unfair to ask for my perspective from the Eagle side, since I wasn't <laughs> pulling for the Eagles. Uh, I, a couple of things, observations, Jay, uh, the Malcolm Butler benching. Uh, we have not heard a official reason why he was benched. And frankly, I think that cost uh, the Patriots a Super Bowl. You took out your best cornerback, and uh, they feasted on his replacement the entire game. So uh, I'm sure Belichick had his reasons. I know he did. Uh, what they are, I don't know if we'll ever find out. Uh, but um, uh, that that one was really inexplicable. Uh, I don't know how many more times we're going to be able to see the Patriots in the Super Bowl. We've got, um, as you said, a 40-year-old quarterback. Uh I was watching Rob Gronkowski, uh, obviously throughout the whole game. He had a terrible first half. Uh, He was almost the old Gronk in the third and fourth quarters. Uh, There was one 75-yard drive, I think, to start the third quarter, of which 70 yards he accounted for. But I was watching him run, and and he is just clearly – he's not a shell of himself, but he's certainly not what he was. And so I wonder how many more years, if any, uh, we'll have Gronk on the Patriots. The, uh, the your point about the defense, uh, they just didn't have the speed to keep up with the um, the Eagles. But now let me flip over to the Eagles because, uh, as I said, the Eagles won this game in my opinion. 
and they won it because of the coach. And the coach understood he could not uh, be predictable. He could not do things that he had done throughout the season. And most importantly, he couldn't do what Atlanta did, which was completely change their game and uh, be gassed in the fourth quarter. He rested his troops. Part of that was the, the middle of the fourth quarter uh, with nine minutes left. The Eagles got the ball and had a seven-minute drive. So the uh, their defense had a seven-minute rest. And as you pointed out, uh, the strip sack uh, happened in the first uh, series uh, after that uh, touchdown by New England. So a great game, uh, greatest no- amount of offense of any game ever, not just in the Super Bowl. Sorry to see Tom Terrific not win it, but uh, certainly I thought the Eagles were the better team uh, last Sunday. And uh, an- another point that people made is, is really a battle of the backups versus Belichick and his uh, brain trust because you had the coach of the Eagles who formerly uh, backed up Brent Favre in uh, Green Bay. You had Frank Reich, who uh, formerly backed up uh, Jim Kelly in uh, Buffalo. And then you had um, the New England, or rather the Philadelphia quarterback, who uh, not only was the quarterback in Philadelphia under the uh, Chip Kelly regime, but he was basically, for all intents and purposes, on the scrap heap. So I think all these three backups came together and like you said, Tom, they were um, they really put the uh, foot to the gas when they had to. And it's almost uh, a tale of both teams decided to run uh, trick plays with quarterbacks yep. as uh, receivers. And Foles caught his and Brady's just glanced off his hands and in social media. Um, who is the r- amazing wideout for Pittsburgh? who was just, um, just gangbusters. Yeah, I can't remember. I know who you're talking about. So, so anyhow, Brown. he tweeted – Antonio, Antonio Brown tweeted, tweeted to Brady that he might be able to uh, help him out with some of his pass-catching uh, pass issues. <laughs> well, on that note, Jay, you want to take us home? Sure. So uh, on behalf of Tom Fox – the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors. We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 89, for the week ending February 9th, 2018, the Eagle Soar edition. So we hope that uh, Jonathan Marks and all those people in Philadelphia are, are really taking uh, the opportunity to celebrate their Super Bowl victory. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I hope you'll join us again next week where we will review the week's top compliance and ethics stories. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would appreciate it if you would rate our podcast. It was a help in getting out information on the only weekly FCPA compliance and ethics review. Also, if you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Thanks again for listening. I hope you'll join us again next week. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.